Welcome to Hack to Start, a podcast focused on interesting people and the innovative ways they achieve success. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Each week we speak with a new guest about how they created, hacked, and hustled their way to the top and distill their insights and experiences for you. The path to success isn't always linear. Hack, start, and repeat. This episode is brought to you by Breather. Find beautiful, practical spaces that you can reserve on the go. Ghost, a simple, powerful publishing platform that allows you to share your story with the world. And SoundCloud. Hear the world's sounds. This episode features David Spinks, the founder of CMX Media. Community is the future of business. Hey, David. Thanks for being on the show today. For sure, man. Thanks for having me. So we'd like to start things off by getting to know a bit about yourself. Like where you're from, what did you study, and how did your passion for entrepreneurship develop? Uh, yeah, sure. So I grew up in Long Island in New York, went to school in upstate New York to a tiny school called SUNY Geneseo. Most people don't know it unless they actually live in New York. Um, and I studied business administration, which was basically just the broadest thing I could choose. Um, <laughs> I started out as like a poli-sci major because I loved debating, um, but then realized how much I hated everything else about poli-sci, and I didn't want to be a lawyer. So I kind of just chose the major that would give me the most options. Um, and I guess I kind of always saw myself as you know wanting to be an entrepreneur. Um, both my parents were immigrants. Both came here with very little um, and both have just kind of been making their own way ever since they came here about 28 years ago. Um, and I've always just kind of had an ambition to be able to create a more, uh, you know, comfortable life than, you know, I've seen my parents work themselves to the bone. Um, and I wanted to be able to work hard and, and, and you know, be able to make, uh, you know, be more comfortable financially and, and support my family in the right way and be able to support them for everything they did for me. So I've kind of always seen myself as wanting to create my own thing and build my own businesses. Um, have been like dabbling in little things even as like a little kid and then uh, finally had the opportunity to get into entrepreneurship kind of right after college. My first job offer was... Um, kind of like an internship for a, a startup that was going about to go through the uh, Dream It mm-hmm. accelerator in Philly. And so I joined that team, uh, moved to Philly for three months. We started it. In two months, we decided we didn't want to build it anymore, so we sold it off to a, a man named Mark Duquette based in Montreal. And uh, I went over with the sale to basically run that site and basically ended up you know, working as the CEO and running this site, we pivoted the whole product, the whole business, and I became a, a founder of that new business. And so kind of fortunately or unfortunately got thrown into uh, entrepreneurship and building companies and kind of jumped in with two feet and have been failing and learning ever since then. <laughs> That's awesome. It's a good way to get a start, though, uh, you know, right into the right into the frying pan. Yeah. Yeah, so so you've spent a lot of your career, you know, building companies and and more specifically uh, communities around these companies. Um, some of your other experiences include, you know, Zarli, Leweb, Udemy, and SeatGeek. So can you tell us a little bit about those those opportunities? Like, how did you go from your first 
start up to to some of these these things? How did you contact them or get involved? Yeah, um, it's kind of just a case of like one thing always leads to another. Um, I so I moved over. So that that first company was was called Scribnia. Um, we sold it SeatGeek. So I was actually like, mm-hmm. you know, I was like one of the first members of SeatGeek, which is now an extremely successful company. Um, and like back then, I was like curating their very first seat maps because they sell sports and talk concert tickets. So I was like curating seat maps and um, helping them do the initial launch and release. And we did that for the last month of the accelerator. After the accelerator was up, I moved over to Scribnia. We ended up pivoting that into Blogdash um, because basically it was a consumer-facing product where people could review bloggers. Um, turned out people didn't really want to do that. But what we ended up with was a ton of really interesting data about bloggers. And mm-hmm. based on my previous experience, I was doing some freelance for a PR firm uh, while I was in college called Ruder Finn. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I knew that businesses would pay a lot for access to bloggers and the ability to get more information on bloggers for their blogger outreach campaigns. So we pivoted that into a blogger outreach product. Um, so it became B2B. It was doing pretty well. Um, I was actually really excited about it. We were growing it. Um, ended up like I wasn't too thrilled with kind of the partnership arrangement we had just because of the nature of how I fell into that founder role. I didn't end up owning enough of it to really continue to motivate me. Um, and I, was, I didn't totally agree with the way some things were being done. Um, so it kind of like started to um, you know, get less motivated there. And then Zarly uh, was kind of taking off and a couple months after they launched, um, they, they approached me. Actually, a, a good friend of mine was working there as the head of product, and they needed someone to run community and product marketing. And so they kind of poached me from my business at Blogdash, um, and I was kind of off to the races with Zarly. That was an insane experience. Uh, I was there for about 11 months, um, ended up getting fired from there uh, in an interesting story, which I've written about. Um, but I, you know, I can't say enough about that team and how much I learned there. Um, after that, did some consulting for a while, worked with LeWeb, worked with Udemy, um, kind of on a contract basis, mm-hmm. and then had the idea for Feast um, with my roommate, Nadia, and um, we just kind of started drawing up ideas for that, and it just kind of stuck with us, and we started working on it a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more until the point where I was just like... We, we decided we had to really go all in on it. So I, I told Loic at LeWeb that that was LeWeb London would be my last LeWeb and um, started working on Feast. Um, and now we're at the point where, so we worked on Feast for a while. We did 500 startups and then um, kind of tried a lot of different products. Finally found something that worked um, and it's still working, but it kind of got to the point where we weren't, motivated anymore to continue to develop the business further um, and we kind of lost lost the intrinsic motivation to do it we just weren't waking up excited about it the way we used to mm-hmm. so um, right now it's still working it's still on auto drive we still get customers every week it's still doing well people are still learning how to cook and um, we're you know we're actually in the process of we're going to be selling it to someone else who will be able to grow it a lot further and do some amazing things with it cool. um, and we'll we'll have an announcement around that very soon nice um yeah, and, uh, yeah. I'd, like to, I'd like to get into that a little bit more, uh, just following this. But I, I, I wanted to know too, like, so, so around those first companies and and Feast included, what are some of the biggest challenges when it comes to building a, a community? Um, well, 
community or company. Um, so <laughs> there are lots of challenges in both. I think like both communities and companies share a similar challenge in that very often the people who want to build them have a very specific idea of what they want it to be. Um, but most of the time that thing is not going to be the same as what people actually want or need. Mm -hmm. Um, so the conversations I have time and time again with companies are, Hey, I want to build this community. Um, people are going to do X, Y, and Z in it. And, and then when you actually launch it, nobody's active and nobody actually participates in it because it's not solving an actual core problem for them or it's not, uh, giving them a sense of, you know, belonging or identity that they really envisioned. Um, and it's the same thing with products, right? Time and time again, people say, I'm going to launch this product, I'm going to launch this company. They launch it, and then no one uses it, and then they get deflated. Um, so I think both both take a lot of research and both take a lot of ad adaptation to get to a point where it's really working well. Cool. And so I, I imagine it varies from, from company to company, but what are some of the most effective tactics or channels to build communities? Is it you know just throwing up, as simple as throwing up a Facebook page, or is it having a forum, or... <laughs> You know, yeah. Um, I mean, the best tactic is not to throw up a platform at all at first. Just start talking to people and and building relationships. You know, if you look at some of the most thriving communities, um, the people who started them started way before they ever actually launched it, mm -hmm. um, and it just becomes a culmination of that, right? So, if you look at like Product Hunt now, which has been the, this like runaway success in Silicon Valley, darling. Ryan Hoover has been building the relationships to to create that community for for years. Um, and he, he launched other projects before that. He's been hosting events for people before that. And it just became this kind of like um, really strong core group that he was able to launch, launch the product with. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we've had that experience now with CMX. People, have, people think it's been around for a very long time. But like mostly because from the minute we launched it, we already had an extremely active, vibrant community. But that came out of six years of me... Um, interacting in the community space, writing content in the community space. We've actually started other communities already in the community space. We, we started the communitymanager.com. We've been building those relationships and creating value for those people for over six years. So CMX, while the brand and the company was new, um, it all it, it got started with a running start because we had already worked so hard to develop those relationships over time. And then once you have those, then you should have just like a good understanding of what platform is the right one. So it might be a Facebook group, it might be a forum, it might be events, it might be uh, a photography-based uh, platform. There, there's countless different platforms, and it really just depends on what's what your community wants to use it for. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and can you speak to some of the most common mistakes that some entrepreneurs might make when trying to build a community? Is it you know trying to launch it too quickly, and like you said, then then you know. Uh, it's it's basically empty and there's crickets and it doesn't actually fulfill a need or. Yeah, I mean that's definitely the most common mistake is they they don't do the proper research up front or they they don't ask themselves the right questions first. So the the first question I questions I ask when somebody tells me they want to build a community is why why is it valuable to you to build a community and why is it valuable to them to build a community, mm -hmm. um, and it's it's. Um, it's it's really important and it's important that both of those are there, right? Like you're you're not going to be motivated to continue to continue to develop a community if it's not bringing you value, mm -hmm. um, and nobody's going to participate if it's not bringing them value. And that value has 
So if you're building, if you want to build a community and the value that you want to get is we want to get really good product feedback from, from our members. Uh, we want to get insights on our design and features and get ideas for new features. But the value that your community wants is they just want like a support network. Um, they just want to be able to ask questions and like get feedback from other people. Then that's a misalignment of value. Um, and it may not work very well because now you're going to go in trying to frame it in a way so you get product feedback while the community is really pushing in a different direction. That's not going to work either. Um, so it's really understanding what the value is on both sides and, and making sure those, those two things are aligned. Absolutely. That's, that's some really critical insight. I think that a lot of people tend to skip over and just try to get, you know, because founders tend to have this, you know, grandiose vision. You just want to get there, but it's important to take the time to think that through. Mm-hmm. I think the best communities and products and companies are the ones that take things that people are already trying to do and just making it easier or enhancing it. So if like you know you have a really good potential to build a community when you have an audience and those people are already trying to talk to each other and they're trying to get together and maybe they're even hosting little happy hours or you get the sense that they want to connect with each other, mm-hmm. then like all you have to do is basically put up a platform and it will grow and it will thrive because you're basically taking something they're already trying to do and giving it a place to do that. Um, but it's when you try to take something that people aren't already doing and maybe they actually don't want to do and you try to make them do it it's extremely difficult to make a community or product work in that way. That's some amazing feedback. So, so right now you're also, and as you mentioned earlier, you're the CEO of Feast. What is it and why did you decide to start it? Uh, Feast is, it's a unique one. Like when I tell people that I started Feast, they, I always get a reaction that they're like, wait, what? Like it's kind of like not <laughs> normal in my line of businesses and experience. But basically uh, I loved cooking like the actual practice of cooking, but I found it to be extremely overwhelming to go grocery shopping and figure out what to cook. And um, I felt really reliant on recipes. And I really like saw people that I you know respected that were cooking for themselves regularly. And I kind of aspired to do that. But then when I started looking at cooking classes that were out there, they were all very um, like professional techniques and and they were like hands-on classes that teach you specific recipes. And like those are cool for social experiences, but they never really gave me like a system to be able to just be able to cook for myself regularly. Um, so we started experimenting with different products. We launched a very similar product to Plated and Blue Apron, if you know them today. So mm-hmm. we all launched around the same time, actually, and had a very similar idea, coincidentally, around... Uh, sending people boxes of all the ingredients for these different meals. Um, and they, they both, those two companies approach it from a little bit more of a utility perspective of like, you're just going to use us for your regular cooking three times a week, whereas ours was a little bit more education focused. So mm-hmm. we did a, a six-week course where every week uh, for six weeks, we would deliver a box of ingredients to your house um, for a specific really awesome recipe that you would open the box and then you'd pull up the lesson on the website and it would correlate with all the ingredients in the box and we and then it would take you through uh, this cooking class uh, with videos and and pictures and images and all these different things that would take you through cooking that recipe and through that recipe you'd learn these techniques and stuff. Um, ultimately, um, moved away from that model of the ingredients just for logistics reasons. It was just a, a nightmare and we sure. didn't, didn't <laughs> feel well suited. To, it was, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, um, you know, we probably broke every food law out there. <laughs> just like you are MVP. 
Um, but uh, we, you know, we we tried that. Then we moved more towards online education, and then we got into 500 startups, and we kind of made some mistakes around trying to build a company to raise money instead of building a company that actually solved real problems for people and started building things that like we could speak to that would scale onto this massive company started building like a marketplace for cooking classes where anyone can upload classes which I still think is an interesting concept but it wasn't right for what we were trying to do mm-hmm. um, and then we kind of like had this big like reflection period and we decided to ignore all like the pressure to raise more money and build something huge and just build like what's the simplest thing that would help us achieve that initial goal of helping people build a system for cooking. And so we launched the product that still exists today, which is the 30 day bootcamp, which actually has no recipes in it. The whole concept is we teach you how to build a habit and a system for cooking over 30 days. You get a, a, a lesson emailed to you every day. Um, and so, like, the first week, you don't even cook. We just teach you about the psychology behind habit building and how to stock your kitchen. And we teach you about taste and flavor and how to use your tongue to understand if things go together. So mm-hmm. you can basically build a system for cooking every day and know what to do when you just have ingredients laying around and you want to throw something together that's nutritious and good and healthy and delicious. Did uh, Tim Ferriss's uh, The 4-Hour Chef, because that came out a little bit after, I think, did that throw kind of a wrench in, in some of your plans, or did you see it as more market validation? Um, it kind of came out right in the middle of Feast. Yeah. Um, and actually, his a lot of his stuff inspired a lot of the things we did in the boot camp. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that was more inspiration. And we're always excited to see, like, unique models and takes on, on how to teach people how to cook. Mm-hmm. I still think his program was still very recipe-heavy. Um, but he he definitely has that approach of um, you know trying to give people a system for being able to cook, not just not just uh, specific recipes. So um, we took a lot from there. We took a lot from you know uh, tiny habits. Um, There's a really interesting concept just around uh, how to build habits. Um, we took some stuff from like Nirayal, who talks about kind of uh, habit building life cycles. Um, we took a lot from like some really popular food writers who, who kind of take this approach to cooking that's much simpler. So we, we learned a lot from a lot of people out there. Again, I had no background in food, cooking, anything like that, um, which is why people are like really surprised when they hear we started a cooking company. Yeah. So like most of what we had, we kind of took from people that were inspiring to us and that we learned a lot from. And then we basically figured out our own system for what worked for us to learn how to cook and then built a program that replicated that for other people. So you had mentioned that you got into 500 startups. So how, how was that process and how did you essentially get in? We got in by busting our asses to meet as many people in the program as possible. Um, we didn't really know anyone. Um, maybe, I think there was like one founder I knew. So we kind of started there. And um, basically the best way to get into any accelerator is just to like get referrals from existing um, or previous batches from pre- previous teams. Um, even, you know, that's even much better than just talking to partners because they talk to so many people, but if they hear from several teams that like you're good people and you're a good team, then they'll be interested. So we just basically started with the one guy I knew and then took calls. We just kept asking for introductions to other ones. We went to every event we could that we knew one of the partners was going to be at, uh, in San Francisco. Um, and so we, we kind of started to get to know, um, you know, one or two of the partners, uh, through those events, 
um, just by like, you know, in passing saying hi, trying not to be overwhelming, but just like making sure that they're aware of us. Um, and basically we got asked to an interview. We were super early at that point. In hindsight, we all agreed that we were too early. Like we probably should have waited, um, uh, uh, a little bit longer before joining a batch, but, um, they just really liked us, um, is what they say. They, they, they liked the way we were thinking about things and our methods for figuring out the answers to our questions. Um, and so I think it was just a mixture of hustling to get to know a lot of good people and then just, um, you know, being the right fit for the kinds of companies they're looking for. So they liked us in the interviews and we got an offer. So what was the biggest lesson you learned by going through uh, 500 startups? The biggest lesson I learned, um, it was, you know, so for us, I say we were too early, largely because we didn't have enough of our shit figured out yet. We were, we were, we didn't have a product market fit yet. We were, we had some interesting things. We had paying customers, which is also like a big reason why we got in. Um, but we didn't have something that we really felt str- like we can strongly run with. Um, and accelerators are really good for growth and for fundraising. Um, they're not good for figuring out your product market fit because all the pressure is on demo day, on raising more money, on on taking what you have and like growing it, right? Uh, at least that's how 500 startups would. I, I, and I'm pretty sure that's true for a lot of the big accelerators. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I think like one of the biggest learnings for me is don't don't try to create pressures for yourself to scale something or grow something um, before you've really found something that you're you're comfortable, um, you know, th- throwing the fuel on the fire for it. Right? I think too many startups try to throw fuel on a tiny little flicker of a flame and it just puts it out. Um, Mm -hmm. so, uh, everyone's want, they want to move very quickly. And, and we hear these stories once in a while of startups with just kind of like rocket ship launches from day one. But I think that's the exception. I think most startups have been work. Most successful startups have been working diligently behind the scenes to get to the point where they have a strong enough flame that they can throw fuel on it and it will grow. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, and so, so coming back to your kind of community background, you started CMX Summit, um, you know, just just a couple months ago. Um, well, more than, more than a couple months ago, but but a few months ago. Um, so, why did you decide to start CMX Summit, um, and and what is it, I guess? Yeah, so we started CMX in February, so um, you know, about ten months ago. Yeah. Um, we've done three summits now: two in San Francisco, one in New York, and it all kind of started with. I mean, I, I had wanted to do the conference for several years. Kind of had the idea around bringing together really unique perspectives on community, and it came from the point of. I've been doing this stuff uh, professionally uh, with my businesses and for other businesses for you know five years, and through that I kept meeting people time and time and time again who were doing very very similar things to me, but none of those people were talking to each other. And aside from like random, there was like some small meetups. There were um, you know we had the only real big blog at the or there there's a few blogs, but we had like the communitymanager.com, which is one of the only like industry blogs. Um, it just like it. It, w- it wasn't centralized at all. There wasn't any sort of gathering for 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 the industry. There weren't big events. There wasn't like um, a, a centralized conversation around it. Which for such a new and fast growing industry, like it was clear that it it, it would bring a lot of value to people. So we just kind of like um, I, I it came, kind of came out of nowhere. 
I was still working on Feast, and we hadn't launched this boot camp yet, so we didn't know how it would go. And basically, I wasn't going to be able to pay rent in a few months. Um, I had mentioned the event to my my buddy Max Altschuler, um, like a while back, and he ended up starting a conference called Sales Hacker, um, and then went really well. So he came to me and he's like, "Hey, I know how to run conferences now. Do you want to do that conference that you were always talking about? I'll handle all the logistics for it, and we'll just split it fifty fifty." So we we did that, and um, in five weeks, it sold out. We had over three hundred people come out. Um, all community professionals and founders and people in this industry who are doing this every day. That's insane. Um, and, it, and, and the energy in the room was just like unlike any other event I've ever been to. Just It's, it's like imagine taking 300 people who all thought they were alone in what they were doing um, and putting them together. And they're all community managers, so they're all very social um, you know, people, very yeah, for sure. people. So it just had this like unbelievable energy and it really felt like um, it was a really strong representation of the of where the community industry is going, and so um, it kind of just like became clear to me at that point that this is what I, I'm meant to be doing, and this is what I can do really well, and I can help a lot of people with it. And mm-hmm. so we we started planning the next summit. We launched our publication where we've been posting a lot of case studies and articles, um, and now we're doing everything. We're doing consulting. We're doing training and workshop products. Um, we've already developed the MVP for our first two software products, which we're experimenting with right now. Um, eventually, you know, I hope to be able to incubate and invest in other community companies and community products. Um, basically, anything we can do to fuel the community industry mm-hmm. and continue to support the people in it, um, we're we're kind of pushing all that forward. Yeah, and what's crazy is like with your first conference and and some of the ones that have come, uh, you know, uh, the other two right after. You guys have hosted some pretty incredible talks with with CEOs and community experts from other companies like Apple, NASA, Burning Man, FBI, Airbnb, Kickstarter, Facebook. Like the list literally goes on and on yeah. and on. So how did you attract that caliber of speakers to a brand new event? Yeah. Um, so the first one obviously is the hardest, just because you're brand new and people have no idea who you are yet. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know it, it was partially just people that I've actually developed relationships in the past so like Ligaya Tishi who ran community for Airbnb and Yelp um, she's a good friend of mine that I've been connected with for a while and so basically I was just like hey Ligaya I'm throwing a conference you know can you speak and she was like of course yeah. um, and she's like one of the most and, and what's cool is like it gave us the opportunity to put the spotlight on people that didn't necessarily have the spotlight. And the guy is a little unique in that like she's done some like TEDx talks and like she's like a pretty well-known person, but there still wasn't like an a audience like this for her. And so like people even if they were like really experienced, really successful community people, um, they were just really excited to have this like really unique audience all of a sudden. Um, and then so like, you know, I reached out to Ellen Lenz who is the original community evangelist for Apple. Um, who I get introduced to through another friend in the space. And like she just heard about the concept and she's like, I've been doing this for decades and I've never seen anyone do this. Like, yes, I want to be a part of it. So it was very mission driven. Um, basically, the way I did it is I wrote up a, a one pager about like who I am, my background. So like they could see I'm somebody who's been doing this as well. And I'm not just like someone trying to capitalize on the market. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something that was like near and dear to my heart. And I, I sent the one pager about like why we're doing this and who I am to to speakers. And so like Robin Dreek, the head of behavioral analysis for the FBI, I basically tweeted at him and I was just like, 
hey, Rob, I saw he was like kind of active on Twitter. So I just tweeted and said, hey, Robin, I'm hosting a conference called CMX focused on how to build communities. Um, do you mind if I email you about it? And he responded and was like, yeah, sure. And he like DM me his email. And then I just sent him the one pager and um, asked him if he'd be available for like a 10 minute call just so I can like tell him a little bit more. And uh, he was like, sure. And so we set up a call and we get on the phone. He was like, David, um, I could tell you know, from like your one pager and stuff that, uh, you probably can't pay me. Um, <laughs> but he was like, this sounds like something that's really cool and really important. And I want to be a part of it. That's amazing. Um, and so it was really just, um, you know, not trying to just like convince people that like they should do it for free or anything, uh, which like everyone did and everyone continues to do, but it's just about, um, you know, really helping people understand why you're doing it and, and why it's important and the people they'll be helping. And, and for the most part, um, that's enough to get a lot of really, really great people. And, and it sets the tone and the, it's the right motivation, right? They end up coming to speak for the right reasons because they really want to be a part of it and they really want to help people, not just because it's a paid gig. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, so since then I, I've reached out to Jimmy Wales. I've reached out to like, <laughs> like, as big people as I possibly can, Sheryl Sandberg, like, why not? Right. Like yep. the worst that happens is they say no, or you just don't hear back. Um, and so I've gotten like, you know, probably over 300 no's or no responses from people at this point, but all you need is 10, 10 really amazing people to say yes. And you have a really special event. For sure. And so the first one, I think I read that you guys put it together in something super crazy, like five weeks. I could be wrong, but, but I think I saw that somewhere. Um, yeah. Um, and, and you can correct me if, if, if I am wrong, uh, but what's your process for, for basically building the event in, in five weeks, the first one, um, and, and selling out? Um, I mean, that one was just kind of, uh, there wasn't much of a process. It was just like, um, we basically threw up an event page before anything. We like, I think I got like the first three speakers or something and we just threw up the event page, mm-hmm. um, and just started collecting tickets. Uh, starting selling tickets and like people were buying them right away which was like all right sweet um we had no idea how big it would be we had no idea how much it would cost we had no idea like how many speakers we could get or who they'd be but we just like started right we just took the first step and as money came in it would go out so we started looking for venues and then um you know we found a venue we really liked and they were like all right it's going to be um a seven thousand five hundred dollar down payment and we're like shit um, and so we're like all right um like we can put a hold on that date and so we put a hold on the date and um we're like we're gonna get you the payment and so we just like you know hustled our faces off to get the word out as much as possible and uh sold enough tickets to make the down payment i think maybe at that point we probably got like one sponsor on as well for you know a few thousand and so it was enough to put the down payment and then we just kept selling tickets and it would come in and it would go out to AV, to, um, to our caterers, to our, uh, you know, any, anything we needed. Basically, we were paying as it was coming in, it would go out immediately. And eventually, we hit the point where we broke even and then all of a sudden, we were making a profit. Um, so as an entrepreneur, where do you see the most opportunity in the next five to ten years? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess every entrepreneur has kind of just what's really exciting to them. Um, and for me, it's obviously <laughs> all around community, but I think I'm like most fascinated by the companies who are able to take something um, that previously had to be done by like a company in-house and they're able to leverage some sort of 
community or crowdsourcing tactics to scale it to extreme levels. Um, and so I love like anything like collaborative consumption. Um, I think there's like a ton of more opportunity um, around collaborative consumption, around crowd-based companies. Um, I think like seeing more companies that even started not community focused and become more community focused is really interesting. Like mm-hmm. Duolingo is a really interesting example where they're like one of the top language learning platforms now. They started by developing the first few classes themselves. They hired language experts to do this stuff. And now they have hundreds of language courses and they've all been developed by their own community, by volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like figuring out ways to leverage the crowd and communities to provide services or, or help each other um, create these marketplaces or to have communities scale up existing platforms. Uh, I think there's still a ton of opportunity there and we've like really only scratched the surface. Yeah, 100% agree. So, you know, besides Duolingo, what are some of your favorite apps right now or tools and books? Um, apps, tools, and books. Um, let's see, apps, uh, Clash of Clans. <laughs> uh, I don't think anybody's ever thrown out a game, actually. I think I know, you're know. Yeah. Hey, it's, it's important, important hey, absolutely. to be able to check out for five minutes and build up your town hall for a few minutes. And, um, yeah, it's fun. Um, I'm a gamer as well, so I always need to have like a little bit of uh, a gaming going on at all times. Um, I don't know, other apps. Um, let me see, what's on my home screen? Um, we use uh, Slack pretty extensively for our internal team. I check Product Hunt every day in the morning. Um, and uh, yeah, so basically Product Hunt leads me to all the new apps and tools that I've been using. I've been, I've been using Assistant 2 a lot. It's been a godsend. Um, basically, uh, if you want to book meetings with people over email, there's a ton of back and forth all the time. Yeah. This has completely eliminated all my back and forth because you can basically um, open up this thing in your Gmail that pulls up your calendar and then you just drag over the times that you have available and click insert and it plugs in all of the time slots into the email with hyperlinks and then all the person has to do is click the one that uh, works for them and it automatically sends you both a calendar invite for that time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I saw that in your email and I've been, I've been checking it out. It is pretty cool. Yeah, it, it's been like absolutely amazing for booking meetings. Um, and then books, um, I don't know, right now I'm reading Traction, yeah. um, which I've really enjoyed. I think some sections are better than others, but as a whole it's been actually really cool at giving me a quick insight into a lot of different channels that I wasn't that comfortable in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there are ones that like I'm really comfortable in that's like very basic for me, so it doesn't help that much. But it also gave me insight into all these other channels that I'm not that comfortable in, and it gave me a lot of perspective and a lot of really cool ideas for how we can distribute our own products and stuff in the future. So um, definitely recommended for... Um, anybody who just wants to like be a little bit smarter about all the different growth channels that are out there. Awesome. Well, I think that wraps everything up. Thanks so much for your time today, David. We both really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Hack to Start and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind the scenes content, and more. Thanks for listening and see you next time.